Everybody, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is so good to be gathering inside with you all. Uh, what that means is we are one step closer to finishing our Dream Boulder project. Uh, it's been like three years or something like that, but we are so, so close. And um, most of you guys don't get to see the level of activity that occurs here on any given day during the week, but it is like a circus here. I feel like there, on any given day during the week, there's like a thousand people here doing a million different things, and it is bananas. Um, and just the fact that we are in here this, mor this morning, uh, it was a huge feat. A lot of people put in a lot of hours just to do this today. So as Natalie said, this morning we are wrapping up, concluding our parable series uh, the parables of Jesus were stories that he told that were, uh, many of them very rich in metaphor, rich with hyperbole, uh, and the idea was to reveal the truth of God's kingdom, but also to reveal the content of our heart, and quite often to lay bare our misguided assumptions about how the world and how God works. And so a lot of these stories that Jesus told would have been extremely jarring to his original audience, forcing them to rethink the way that things really are. And this parable that we're going to be going through this morning is one of those stories. Uh, so I'm just going to jump straight into it. The story that we're reading, we find it in the book of Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. It says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I imagine that this story would have rocked people's worlds. This short, the short few details of this story would have completely reframed the conversation around who God loves, around who God accepts, about who, about who is truly righteous, about what really pleases God, and what does he really ask of us. And so there are two main characters in this story. First, there's the Pharisee. And uh, if you've hung around church for any length of time, you've probably learned that the Pharisees are not the guys to root for. They are by far the group that Jesus challenges and rebukes the most in the Gospels. I remember uh, uh, when I first started attending church when I was in college, uh, my first kind of uh, place of volunteering was in the kids ministry. It was actually here at Cornerstone in like 2005 and uh, hung out with the four and five-year-old kids. And I remember there was this old kids Sunday school song called, I Just Want to Be a Sheep. Does anybody remember this one at all? All right. Do you guys remember? There's this verse, maybe you guys who've, who've heard this can sing it with me. I don't want to be a Pharisee. 
I don't want to be a Pharisee. Come on, y'all, because they're not fair, you see. I just want to be a sheep. There's some killer hand moves in this song. So it's easy for us, if, we, if we've hung around a church environment at all, we, we enter into the story already knowing, already having made up our mind, this guy's a total jerk. But that was actually the complete opposite of how he would have been thought of at the time that Jesus told this story. That, that, that wasn't the sentiment of his original audience at all. The Pharisees were a religious sect of Judaism that this group basically controlled the temple in Jerusalem. And they were the primary voice of Judaism at this particular time. They devoted themselves to an exact observance to God's law and scripture. And their goal was to maintain religious identity, maintain religious purity, especially in the midst of the occupation from the Roman government. And they were, in many ways, thought of as the spiritual champions of their day. They were comprised of the most educated, the, most, the brightest, the most gifted, and what seemed to be the most morally upright people. They were the most powerful and prestigious members of their society. And the Pharisees were the ones that, that, that you would have looked up to if you, were, if you wanted to be a good Jew, if you wanted to please God, if you wanted to know anything about God. They knew scripture inside and out. They had most of, most of it, if not all of it, completely memorized. And not only that, but they looked the part. Just seeing a Pharisee walk by, you're like, that is one holy dude. They just looked pious and holy. This God stuff, they had it all figured out. They were in a class above the rest. The tax collector, on the other hand, was on the bottom rung of the very lowest bar of the Hebrew moral scale. They were a social plague. And so while the Pharisee controlled the temple, it's widely suspected that this group managed to get themselves categorically expelled from the temple, not even allowed a single step past the threshold of the temple, or they would completely contaminate the whole space. It was thought that their mere presence was an offense to God. You see, the Roman government enforced a heavy, tax, a heavy tax on the Jewish people, but collecting those taxes was hired out to the locals, and they were paid a very comfortable salary to do that. And not only that, but tax collectors were famous for taking an extra cut on top of that huge tax rate. And stealing was just too easy for them. All they had to do was kind of just like include, slip in their own personal fee into the tax bill. And when you were like dished out, doled out your taxes, you weren't given like an itemized receipt, an invoice where you can like check, make sure everything like cleared, it was everything looked good. You just had to like, if this is what the guy said you owed, you just kind of had to take his word for it. And you just like had in the back of your mind, like, I wonder how much this guy is actually like robbing from me right now. And so if you think about the time, the culture, people were paid minimally, far less than what was right or even livable. Then they were taxed exorbitantly on that wage. And then they were taxed on top of that by their supposed Jew Jewish brother. Now, this was the unforgivable part. This was the part that cut deep. They chose wealth and they chose personal comfort over loyalty to their people and to their family, and to their God. They, they had effectively traded teams. They, they were no longer being oppressed along with their people, but they were doing the oppressing. So back to our parable. These are our two figures, our two characters. And Jesus is using these two figures as, as sort of an invitation for radical change in our life. 
radical change in three important areas. The first one is this, is our perception of God. Jesus is inviting radical change in our perception of God. Recently, I read uh, an article about a really bright and ambitious teenager named Jonathan Walker. And uh, he's a graduating senior from Florida who was accepted into 27 different universities. Apparently, you guys aren't impressed with that. I was impressed with that. You guys are only 27. <laughs> Including schools like Harvard, Yale, University of Penn. Uh, he was offered more than $4 million in scholarships. That's a lot. Thank you! And this is especially remarkable considering schools like Harvard, they, at this point in time, they have historically low acceptance rates right now. For students entering the fall 2022, which Jonathan Walker is, the acceptance rate is just 3.2%. 3.2% of more than 61,000 applicants. The largest applicant pool they've ever had, the lowest acceptance rate they've ever had. A few years ago, the president of Harvard said, we could fill our classes twice over with valedictorians. You see, it's not enough to just be smart. It's not enough to just be talented or high achieving. You have to be outstanding, exceptional in ways that makes you stand far above the rest. And so our world, we, we marvel at those who somehow break the barrier and beats the odds and makes it into the most exclusive schools and workplaces and industries and clubs. It's a, it's a newsworthy story. We're like, wow. And honestly, people have carried the same sentiment and perception about God for a very long time. When it comes to God's favor, when it comes to God's approval, his love, his saving grace, there are those who are in and there are those who are out. And sadly, most are out. There really is only room for the truly exceptional ones. So you're really going to have to get yourself out there and prove yourself if you're going to make an impression. And that's the Pharisee. The name Pharisee itself is actually derived from an Aramaic word that means to separate, to distinguish, to divide. In a sense, the message was that they were in a category apart from everyone else. And this category, this special category, was really the only one that God liked. They were the few who had been accepted. They were the few that beat the odds. And now... For people looking at the Pharisee, the Pharisee lived in a way that was completely unattainable. And so just to follow the logic here, if the Pharisees are the ones that God approves and loves, and if the Pharisee life is unattainable, well, I guess that means that God's love is unattainable. I guess that means that his approval is unattainable. It will always just be out of reach for me, even if I really wanted it. And the acceptance rate is so low, I wonder if it's even worth trying. And so now... If the Pharisee was unattainable, then the tax collector was untouchable. He was a stark reminder that you can fall out of God's saving reach. And his acceptance and his love only goes so far. And it certainly doesn't stoop so low as to touch a person like that. And just like in the New Testament world of Jesus, I think many of us still live somewhere on this twisted spectrum between the unattainable love of God and being untouchable 
to the love of God. We exist somewhere between where, where he wouldn't stoop so low and I can't possibly reach that high. But no matter where we fall on that religious, spiritual, moral scale, it just doesn't seem like there are any winners, just losers. But now hold up. Jesus, what did you say? The tax collector, wait, he, he enters the temple? He goes in. And wait, hold on. He's not like struck by lightning or anything? Like God, God doesn't just like strike him dead for going in there and like contaminating that whole space with his filthy presence? Wait, 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 wait. He's the one that's justified? He's the one that goes home forgiven and honored? He's the hero of the story? I mean, I think we can maybe begin to just catch a small glimpse of why all this would have seemed like an absurdity. And here was the jarring truth that Jesus was sharing. Your perception of who God is and what God is looking for is totally off base. You see, Jesus' own daily life was spent immersed with so-called untouchables. People who weren't even allowed in the temple to come and worship, to reconcile with God, to pray. The prostitutes and the diseased, and yes, even the tax collectors. For example, there was Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of a large city called Jericho. And when Jesus came to his neighborhood, he was filled with curiosity and intrigue and excitement as much as the next person. And he wanted to at least catch a glimpse of this mysterious and miracle-working rabbi that everybody had been hearing so much about. But the crowd wouldn't make room for him to see. And so his only option was to go climb up into a tree. That was the only place where he could get an actual clear vantage point. And the message was clear to him. There is no room for you here, not you. This isn't for you. You don't belong here. But Jesus, he stops in his tracks. He locks eyes with him and he calls him by name. You, yes, you, Zacchaeus. I want you. You don't belong up in there. You don't belong there in that disgrace. You don't belong there in that condemnation. You don't belong there in that shame. You don't belong there in that rejection. You belong here with me. I have made room for you. What I have is made especially for you. So Zacchaeus, I need you to come down quickly because I need you. And let's not forget Matthew. One of Jesus' 12 core disciples whom he personally pursued and called was a tax collector. He was literally in the middle of collecting taxes in his booth when Jesus said, come, follow me, I choose you. The world told them that they weren't allowed to enter the temple, so Jesus brought the temple to them. And he's setting the record straight. That there are no untouchables. There, there is nowhere God's love won't go. You're, 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 you're not only allowed in, but God's love is pursuing you. Now, it'd be easy to misunderstand this parable and sort of like swing the pendulum hard to the other extreme because before the perception was that God only accepts the Pharisee. And then we kind of start to think like, well, I guess Jesus is kind of saying that he's like the bad guy. And so... Maybe we need to believe that God actually rejects all the Pharisees, but that would be missing the point completely because that's not true. 
In fact, Jesus' own life shows us that some of his own followers were Pharisees. There was Nicodemus. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. But rather, this story, what it's doing is it's challenging the perception that the Pharisee is in this special, unattainable, righteous category. And it's not just that the Pharisee isn't in this category, but there aren't categories. (laughs) There's no categories to begin with. There's no dividing line for God's love and grace. There are no haves and have-nots. His his life, his love, his acceptance, his salvation is equally accessible and attainable by all and offered to all, whether it be the Pharisee or the tax collector, for the rich or the poor, for the influential or the despised, for the powerful or the nameless, or for the pagan or the prom queen. I'm running out of comparisons. You get the idea. Because get this, ultimately, God doesn't love you because of what you do. God loves you because you are his. He's after you. He's after your heart. And so the second radical change that Jesus is inviting is our posture toward him. Our posture toward God. And this gives us more insight into why this parable ends the way it does with just one man justified and forgiven and honored and not the other. On the surface, these two people couldn't have been more different, right? They were on opposite ends of the religious scale, the social scale, the moral scale. But actually, none of that actually even matters in the temple that day. The only difference that actually has any bearing on their relationship with God in that moment was the posture of their heart. It's the only thing that God was looking at. So in his parables, Jesus says that the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. And so we get this this image, this visual of, okay, the Pharisee, he stands up and he's taking his assumed position in that special distinguished category before God that he thinks that he's in. God, I am so thankful. I am not like everyone else. I am so thankful that I'm not like the cheaters and swindlers and adulterers and crooks or heaven forbid, like that guy, that tax collector over there. I fast from food twice a week. I tithe from all my income. I am thankful that I am awesome. (laughs) Now, the real problem isn't the prayer, actually. It's the posture behind the prayer, which is that he's really just there in the temple to praise himself. In fact, his prayer seems really heartfelt, doesn't it? His prayer actually seems like so emotional, and yet he barely even glances at God in it. But he offers this like weighty contemplation on his own stellar performance and righteousness. So why didn't he leave the temple blessed? Why didn't he leave the temple honored by God that day? I mean, was God just like annoyed with him? Was God punishing him? Was God angry? The answer is no. It's because he came in saying he didn't need it. He was already good to go. He came in to let God know that he had already taken care of it. 
He didn't need God's help because he had already helped himself. He didn't need God's vindication because he had already vindicated himself through his own great life and wonderful choices. But for all the hard work and dedication to achieve so much and be so good, he made one colossal miscalculation. God wasn't impressed with any of that stuff. And as wonderful and good and holy as people think it might have been, it was all just noise without the right heart posture. And that's what the tax collector had. In fact, it was the only thing he had. You see, there are no prerequisites that you need to fulfill to receive God's grace and life and forgiveness. The only thing you really need is need. To know you need it, to know you need him, to know that you are broken without him, to know that you have to have him or you have nothing at all. And now the tax collector, he obviously wasn't without issues. He obviously wasn't without his problematic sins. I mean, this was the type of person that basically gave up everything in order to secure a comfortable and wealthy life for himself. He chose, this is the kind of person who chose to burn his relationships and ties with his community because he believed that real contentment lied with money and material possessions and a nice house and great food and a leisurely life. But now... This man finds himself drawing near to the presence of God in the temple, beating his breast, the ancient gesture of utter grief and mourning, ashamed to even lift up his eyes to heaven. Because he had realized that he had made a miscalculation. All those things he thought would satisfy him, those things that he thought would be enough, weren't. And he had given up so much to get it all. And now he had this inner ache that he realized only God could heal. God, I am done striving for joy. I am done striving for contentment and satisfaction on my own terms and outside of your will. What I need is you. And his simple prayer says a lot about his posture toward God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I want to stop just for a moment to, to, to think about this word merciful, because there's actually a lot packed in, into this one word that when we read the English language, it doesn't let us see. But if we looked at the original Greek language of the New Testament, this word for merciful here is the word halaskomai. And the reason why this word is interesting is because this isn't the typical word used for merciful or mercy in the Greek language in the New Testament. This word literally means here in this, in this prayer, make reconciliation by sacrifice. And this word, halaskomai, is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. In Hebrews 2.17, where it refers to Jesus making atonement for the sins of the people. 
And what's more, this word, this Greek word is derived from the very same word that we get for mercy seat. And if you're not sure what that is, uh, in the age of Moses, God instructed Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant. It was a large golden box that had two golden angels on either end with wings that joined in the middle. And the, and the space between those wings was an open area called the mercy seat. And this represented the throne seat of God on earth. This represented God's presence in the midst of his people. And it was placed in the temple, in the, in the inner chamber of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest would enter into that temple, into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. All of this imagery, this whole vision is loaded into this short prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Another way to phrase it, if we want to be extremely literal and capture its full significance, is God be mercy seated toward me. Look at me like you look at the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. Now aside from having lots of fun nerding out on the original languages of the Bible, this is important. Because it says everything about the posture of his heart toward God. You see, he's coming clean about his own brokenness. He's coming clean about the inner ache of his soul. He's recognizing that the only way forward, the only way forward into forgiveness, the only way forward into a holy life, into renewed life, the only way forward into a life that is truly full of meaning and goodness is through God's gracious gift and work, not his. And that he actually believes that God is a God of love and mercy. And that he is a God that not only can do those kinds of things in his life, but actually wants to. He's not a God who will strike him dead for peeking through the door. He's not a God who will reject him because he hasn't proven himself. But he's a God who invites him to draw in and is eager to cover him with his compassion and mercy and life-changing love. Our posture toward God. Now I said Jesus is inviting radical change in three important areas of our life. The third one is this. It's a little different. It's our appraisal of others. You see, this parable wasn't only meant to address our relationship with God, but it was meant to address how we relate and treat other people. Remember how this whole thing started and re the reason why Jesus shared this story? It said in the parable, it says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so the Pharisee, because of his high view of himself, could only look one direction toward others, down. Great was his own name, great was his own deeds, that he felt like he was empowered and maybe even had permission to treat people like they were worthless with disgust. And you know, one of the reasons why I was so drawn to this parable for this series is because it seemed like, like it was almost made for our own cultural moment. And so while the Pharisee as a religious sect, it disappeared well over a thousand years ago, a Pharisaical spirit is very much alive and well, and well today. What I mean is I look around at our world especially in social media, especially in mainstream media. And man, we have become a people who have assigned ourselves incredible virtue. 
We have assigned ourselves incredible honor and importance because of our own earned righteousness, or to put it another way, because of our own rightness. Because of how we vote, or where we stand on one social issue or another, or how active or enlightened we think we are in the one cause that happens to be getting the most press this month. Whether it be COVID, or Afghanistan, or Ukraine, or racism, or guns, or abortion. Our culture, in pharisaical fashion, we draw a dividing line between ourselves and others who do not do what I do, who do not think like I think, and who do not look the part like I do, and who aren't true believers in this thing like I am. And from this place, we look down on others. And from this place, we feel empowered to tear others down. And from this place, we feel permission to attack and to criticize and to cancel. And we make people feel like they are worthless, like they are less than God's own creation and children. But me, our world thinks, I'm justified. Look what I'm doing. I'm clearly the one who's right here. And thank goodness, thank goodness I'm not like all those people. You know the people. Those people who are ignorant and hateful and selfish and loud and simple-minded or closed-minded. And I hope you know that I'm not calling out one particular group or people or side over any other. This pharisaical spirit has showed no favoritism. It has permeated into our entire society. It's taken a grip everywhere All corners, all sides, all perspectives, all ideologies have become intoxicated with their own elevated view of fill in the blank. But for all the energy we spend making sure we are the ones who are right, we are the ones who are righteous in the matter, reminding others that they are the ones who are wrong and therefore bad, we have missed one very important thing. God is not impressed with any of it. So I'm a father of three young kids. They are six, eight, and 11. And uh, you know how kids are. They're constantly trying to show off. And sometimes it's adorable. They, they make little creations and drawings and paintings, and it just like melts your heart. It's incredible. Uh, and then sometimes it's not that way. Uh, sometimes I'll be in the middle of an important phone call, and my, one of my kids just is get, trying to get my attention, and finally they like manage to like make eye contact with me, and, and they're like, they just like are telling me I got to get off this phone call right away. They've got to show me this wildly incredible thing that I've never seen before that'll totally blow my mind, and they only have a few precious moments to show me. Now, so I'm like, oh. I wrap up the phone call as quickly as I can. I follow them to their room, and I'm like, all right, what is it? And then it ends up being something really weird. <laughs> like they chug a bunch of LaCroix, and they go burp in a cup or something like that. I'm like, wow, good job. And inside, I'm thinking, like, it's like they don't know me at all. (laughs) Now, if they had just come and told me that they just made themselves a sandwich, you know what I mean? Or, like, they just came and explained to me that they accidentally dumped the jar of glitter out, but they decided to go get a vacuum and cleaned it all up, and you can't even tell. Dude, uh, there'd be high fives all over the place. There'd be dance parties. Let's do this, right? 
You know, one of the recurring problems that God's children have is we struggle with understanding what it is that really impresses him. To put it another way, we, we easily lose sight of what really matters to Jesus. And if I could just make like an educated guess based on, I don't know, just like the whole witness of scripture. What impresses God is not our many talents or achievements. It's not our religious rigor or church attendance. It's not our charisma or the size of our platform. It's not our activism about this cause or that one. It's not how we vote or how much we donate. It's not that we get something right or win an argument. What matters to God is moving toward him and toward the world in love through humility. There is a party in heaven over that. Jesus concludes his parable. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But for the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Will be honored. Worldly honor, Instagram honor is cheap. It's empty. Kingdom honor, the kind that lasts forever, it's reserved for the humble in heart. You see, God would much rather I be someone who gets it wrong and yet owns my brokenness and shows love to other people than to be someone who gets every single thing right and yet crushes people. Worship team, why don't you guys come on up? My prayer for us today is that we would walk in the steps of Jesus, who dismissed the dividing lines of culture, who shared meals with both the Pharisee and the prostitute, community leaders and tax collectors, and showed each and every one of them dignity. He showed each and every one of them worth, and he invited each and every one of them into the life of the kingdom. And my prayer for us today is that we would walk in the steps of the tax collector from Jesus' own parable, that we would strive for humility over rightness, that we would be quick to own our own brokenness rather than point out the brokenness of others, and that we would come to God not merely with a collection of achievements, but with a posture of praise, a posture to receive, because we know we need him. Let me pray for us. God, we need you. Lord, this morning we confess that you're not asking us to bring before you our best efforts, our most fabulous achievements. You're simply asking us to bring our need to you. To bring our ask to you. 
God, we believe that you are a God that is full of mercy, is full of compassion, is full of forgiveness, is full of grace. And you like to give it to us. You delight in pouring it out on us. If we would just come to you in a posture to receive it, to ask for it, to enjoy it. Lord, I pray that our posture this morning would be bent towards you in praise and bent towards others in love with humility. We are grateful for your work in our lives and the fact that we could never bring you anything that you don't already have. And so what we bring you, what we do have that we believe might bless you. And that is the breath in our lungs and the praise and song that we can offer you, our heart, ourselves. And it's in the name of Jesus that we know that we can do this and that we pray these things. Amen.